Welcome to Cloud Dialogues episode eight. Hey, Georgia. How are you this evening? Well, it's morning for hey. me, evening for you. Yep. Yep. We're, we're opposites as usual. I'm good. I had the weekend in Milan and now I have returned. Yeah. Milan's nice. Italy's nice. The food's Lovely. nice. So you probably filled yourself up. And sunny. Just nice and <laughs> sunny. sunny. A little bit different to London. Even though it was cold, it was sunny. Yeah. And there was no wind. Really? Just nice. Not really. Not really any wind. I went for a run tonight in London and like, I felt like the wind was pushing me around my track. I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, today, <laughs> so we... Uh, today we are introing serverless to our listeners. So it's been a topical area for the last few years. I think a lot of executives especially think it's some mysterious thing and maybe a lot of people have heard about it but don't know what it is. So we'll dive into what makes serverless tick and why it's suited to many business needs and why executives should be investing in their teams to reskill into serverless. It's developing a specific mindset in the way to solve problems. So in the past, developers have had to do a lot of glue code and a lot of development that was not directly related to solving the problem that they have to solve. So it's... Not about reskilling so much as developing a serverless mindset on how to solve problems. And with serverless, it's about understanding the cloud provider and the services they provide and how to use those managed services to solve a particular problem at hand and remove all the requirement for developing uh, glue code and all those extraneous things that developers have to do to get their app up and running. And examples are dealing with, you know, APIs and and dealing with queues and having to manage databases and all those sorts of things. And there's many, people think serverless is still new and not many people do it, but there's plenty of examples documented out in the wild where people are yeah, successful out in the wild, <laughs> yeah, like the animals, uh, that pe- where people Lions are successful. Lions and tigers and bears. And I think for a lot of executives, Matt, it's just another thing that they need to do, even just the different hyperscalers. If you're, if you're dealing with one and you have to start dealing with another one, oh, my goodness. Like, <laughs> exactly. Oh, and I feel like a lot of executives hear about serverless and they're like, oh, it's just a whole other thing. But I think... Just like with cloud, there are use cases that are greatly suited to serverless. Yeah. And where that is the case, if we have the opportunity to use it, we should. But just like cloud, there will be times when it's not the best option. Yep. Yeah, exactly. We'll cover some good use cases and maybe some not a lot of things that happen in enterprise, especially, are definitely well suited to serverless. So, next episode, we have Joe Emerson from Branch, which is an insurance company in the US, and he is a textbook case on developing a fully serverless insurance company and the operating model around that. He'll discuss how he does that 
with no ops team, how he develops his application and, you know, getting that information out there I think is important because people need specific use cases. Examples, to yeah. Examples. To understand um, how it's working. Exactly. We're super excited to have Joe. Yeah. I'm super excited to have Joe. I think bringing that serverless conversation to life, you know, you have to talk about operating model. Exactly. And it's, it's a different, again, along with the serverless mindset from a developer perspective, the operating model is also a mind shift. Absolutely. So, yeah, and obviously that's our, um, that's the goal of the next couple of episodes. This one and the next one is we're going to learn all about serverless and how to work on serverless. Yep. And what makes it tick. And we'll also cover Yay. the term event-driven. Event-driven sort of goes with serverless as well and the business benefits around security, scaling and more. So let's dive in. So I'll, before I describe what serverless is, let's just briefly discuss the business IT landscape. So up until you know a few years ago, even before cloud, organisations built VMs, purchased software, installed software for every single part of their business, even the parts that were not really differentiating their business. So I think that we went from on-prem to cloud, right? Yep. So like going looking at a few, well, hopefully most organisations went from, if there was use cases for it, which for most organisations there would be, going from on-prem to cloud, and now we're talking about another paradigm shift, which is going from cloud to, to having virtual machines in the cloud, yep. someone else's data center, right? So we're going from our, our data center to someone else's data center to, oh, actually, there is no data center for the most part, for the yep. most part, right? Exactly, yep. And obviously, that's a whole shift in the way of thinking as organizations and the way of working as an organizations, right? Yeah, exactly. And being able to um, well, take they take the next step. So people have have developed, have moved moved into the cloud, treated it as a data center, but then they've started to move onto the journey of uh, taking on software as a service More to cloud solve, native. yeah, cloud native things for yeah. parts of their business that don't differentiate them. For example, identity and accounting and some of those things that you need in your business uh, but you don't want to develop those systems you don't want to purchase software you don't want to manage software to deal with them you want to use as many pre-canned solutions as possible and the pre-canned solutions are usually fairly general but that's okay because it's solving the same problem for everyone a business exists to solve a particular problem you know particularly use case and that's where their differentiator is. And that's where they have software developers to solve that problem. And that's why you, as an executive, have your software dev teams hopefully solving the right problems that makes your business count and unique and why people choose your particular business for whatever, whatever they do. And that's why serverless can be so advantageous, right? Now we're not worried about setting up virtual machines. We're not worried about infrastructure as a service, not even worried about platform as a service. 
That's right. We're purely worrying about the events that the are event, involved. Yeah. And you're so, – so instead of developing software on VMs and instead of – and then the next level was developing software on platform as a service, you're solving problems by writing – so serverless itself is actually made up of two different things. You have your business logic code, which gets executed in, you know – like a AWS Lambda or Azure function and that runs your code and that's it and then it goes away and that could be really quick right but that happens a lot so all your you know used to be a big monolithic application and now it's distributed your business logic is distributed into different functions that get called based on events and and when you say event Matt because I feel like to some some people that might not be entirely clear. Yep. What does that mean? What's an event? So I'll give an example. Um, when you send an API to a server, as soon as you your browser hits that server, an event is sent to that server saying, send me this data. So the server responds by running some code, which sends the data back. That's as simple as it gets. And that event is effectively a payload which has some information in it on the request and then it gets a response back and then the browser does something with that. So ultimately, that's all an event is. Um, I was saying serverless is made up of two things. There's one, there was the function that runs the code, but the other part is the managed services that your cloud provider provides to solve particular problems. They don't have to write code for everything. So you have an API gateway to deal with APIs. You don't have to write an API. In the past, people had to write their own, a lot of the time, wrote their own API servers and things like that. And now it's all about using the managed provider to solve those problems like queues and which is sending messages around to different systems and things like that. So it's about utilising the cloud provider for what they're good at and they manage all those uh, components. So ultimately the developer, all they have to do is think about uh, their application. They can model out their events. They can then work out what code they need to write based on the, the problem that they're solving. So that that's kind of serverless in a very high level nutshell. And the benefit of just writing the business logic is that there's no VM to manage, there's no patching, there's no underlying components that anyone has to look after. They just have to operate their code and and manage their code. Their code dependencies, they still have to manage, but they've always had to do that anyway. So that part doesn't really go away, but ultimately I feel like there's less code The great to thing about serverless is that it's an opportunity to be closer to the customers that we serve, right? Whether you're like a developer creating internal systems or like and your teams are your customers or whether you're working for a financial services organisation and you're managing some sort of externally facing application like banking, for example, it's like, okay, well, when we think about how we interact with our customers, what exactly does that look like? Because that will drive that event model like quite explicitly, right? As opposed to like, oh, we've got this whole stack of infrastructure that we need to manage. And most of it, our customer doesn't care about. 
Yeah, that's right. right. Exactly. Most of it our customer doesn't care about at all, except for maybe this little bit on the top of the stack, right? <laughs> yeah, which is where the business differentiator is, right? And yeah, that, that's, absolutely. That's the part that people care about, that their transaction is done, whatever the customer needs to be done, is done quickly, reliably, and available most of the time. Like, you know, when you go to government websites on the weekend, oh, sorry, we're down for the next two days because we're doing it's maintenance. Unreal. <laughs> it's unreal. And those, like... that, in this day and age, but having to deal with that is ridiculous. And the reason why it has to be down for two days is because they're dealing with the old ways of, you know, they might be upgrading their operating system and yeah. having the extra it's time madness. Yeah, yeah. To, to deal with that. So, um, And, the- like, thinking from that perspective, Matt, when you think about things that I know obviously you're a big advocate for serverless, but when you hear about different workloads and different things that organisations are doing and building, what do you think have been the best cases for serverless that you have seen like where do you hear about an application or a stack or whatever you think that should be serverless a lot of the time it's those apis back-end apis even today people still use the alternative a lot of people still use containers for that sort of thing right and while containers some people call containers serverless i don't um they're better than VMs. So a VM is a huge long, long improvement. A VM it's like a is... scale of modernization. Exactly right. right. Yeah. <laughs> it's and... like just having just having servers not in your data center, but in AWS's data center or Azure's or whatever. And then there's like maybe containers and then there's like serverless. <laughs> exactly. So the you have the VM that's there, you know, it's a long running host that stays there for a long time and has to be maintained. Containers improve that a lot because they're shorter lived, they're smaller, but you still have to maintain containers. They're still, you know, got a lot of components that you have to you update, You still need to manage, do lots of patching. And you still have to redeploy them with updated patches because there's still components in there that And that then if you're managing you a fleet with. of them, you need to manage your fleet, right? And, you're, and yeah, you've got sure to orchestrate, orchestrate. Things them. like FinOps, all these sorts of things are... They require ongoing management and just even just regular patching and security updates on these types of systems. Yeah. Yeah. Containers are an improvement, but a lot of the time (laughs) they can be replaced by just functions to do this business logic for the, you know, for the APIs and things like that. So APIs are a great use case. Uh, Yeah. A lot of front end apps, almost every front end web application that you use in your browser will have some sort of API on the back end. And almost always uh, those can be serverless, no worries. Uh, things like if you're doing long-running machine learning tasks, training, those sorts of things are not really suited for serverless because the back ends have a usually a limited time that these functions can right. run. So they're usually not, but they're more specific. There might be specific workloads that have long-running tasks that, that aren't really... Uh, suited for serverless, or that, that sometimes that's changing as well, depending on how long they have to run. Especially with these larger models, the tuning sometimes doesn't take too long. It depend, depends on on what you're doing. Um, but yeah, in general, most of those patterns, even video, video streaming, all those sorts of things, are absolutely suited to to serverless. 
But I think one thing as well, Matt, that we've kind of spoken about before and, and people might have missed this, we just spoke about it briefly last year, is like sometimes when we talk about serverless products, it's like things that are genuinely serverless and things that are perhaps not quite like appear as serverless. But exactly, yes. Not. What's yep, the yep. difference? So the difference between that is ultimately a scaling to zero. So what I mean by that is that when your serverless function runs, you get charged, say, basically for the uh, time it runs and how much memory it uses. Usually that's the, um, yeah. that's the metric. And it might be 300 milliseconds. You get charged, you know, a fraction of a cent for that particular run. And as soon as that function stops, you don't get charged anymore. You're not getting charged anymore. Yeah. And that's the difference between containers and VMs. You can scale to zero. Yeah, you can't, yeah. With VMs, it's always running, so you're always being charged. With containers, they're usually running for a lot longer. Even if they're not doing anything, sometimes they're just sitting there. So you're still being charged for that compute. The compute might be cheaper for a container, but you're still being charged for it. For a serverless system, usually you get charged nothing if it's not doing anything. And I say usually because sometimes there's managed services that don't scale to zero. There's a whole right. raft of different different things. It's released something last year that was insinuating that it was serverless, but when we dug into it, it was yeah, like, there was it doesn't scale to zero because yeah, that's the, the requirement, yeah. right? Within the community, what's generally accepted as serverless is things that scale to zero. Yes, that's correct. So an example there was, I think it was Aurora Serverless a couple of years mm. back when it got released. It scaled down, but didn't really. But not was, to zero. Yeah. yeah, right. That's slowly Lies. improving. <laughs> Lies. But it's still better <laughs> than. Lies. Sometimes it's still better it's than. Improvement. The alternative, yes. But there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of serv databases out there. That There's a lot of innovation happening in the database space. There's one got released recently called NileDB. I haven't looked into it. It's like a serverless post. Interesting. I haven't heard about DB. that either. Matt, um, and I think one of the one of the key drivers for serverless is cost, right? Yep. Yep. In terms of cost, like what are the biggest benefits that you've seen? Like how impactful do you think it actually can be? From a cost perspective, it's massive because usually you're paying, you know, hundreds of dollars for a VM per it could even be per month depending on the size of the, of the vm right and a lot of the time it's just sitting there idle and you're actually it's actually costing a lot of money because you have to manage that vm as well whereas with serverless it could be in that like dollars per month to run the same workload and that's probably a heavy workload compared to hundreds of wow dollars. so it's significantly yeah, right. different but it's not even that it's the thing that people forget is that with a proper cost attribution, so you've got your tags and everything set up properly, even for the parts of the application that the function serves, you can actually get an attribution for the makeup of your application, you know, from yeah, that's the user journey from the yeah. beginning to end. Right. So right. your CFO can see which part like, parts. So at like an event level. Yeah, at event level. So you can see wow. what... The makeup of your what? application is and what parts wow. of the application cost more than others, which you would never be able to get 
running on that a level of granularity. PM. No, yeah. yeah, right. I didn't realize that the like FinOps advantages could be that yeah. and significant. As long and and usually you're forced to do all the tagging properly. And even if you're not doing the tagging properly, even if you got it per function name, you could work out, you know, you could sort your functions by biggest user and then you, suddenly you can see where your optimizations, you know, could be and things like that. And it's, it's just, it's, it's a different mindset and it's the visibility that executives have never really had in the past of their, of their applications and the you know business business differentiators. So basically, it means if you've used SaaS, you know your cost for your SaaS components, your managed components, yeah. like your that's all fixed. You know what that cost is, so you can put that to the side. You get that full visibility for all the other parts, and 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 also helps with performance. So it's not just cost, but you can see you know where things are spending a lot of you time, where things can be optimized. That's right. And it, and it really That's supporting whatever it is that you're doing. Containers give that visibility too, as long as you're not running monolithic containers. So um, they sort of help a little bit because containers. <laughs> monolithic are, containers. <laughs> which sometimes people do, you know, hundreds of megabytes. That sounds like an oxymoron. That is, that people do it. Some of the Windows containers <laughs> can be like a gigabyte. Um, wow. But, and, and yeah, it's better than a VM, but you're still, you know, you still got to pay for all that storage. Oh, that's the other thing. Consuming all of those resources. Yeah, I forgot to mention around serverless, around storage as well, like blocks, um, object storage, like S3 and Azure Blob. That's all serverless, right? Because you're only getting charged for anything you put in there, and any time you take data out. Yes. As soon as you remove, as long as you're not pulling data out of your storage. You're not being charged. You're only being charged for what's being stored there, yeah. and then if you delete it all, obviously your charges stop. So that's it's using all those components and data managed databases. Sometimes oh, oh, serverless databases are a little bit rarer. A good example is DynamoDB on on AWS. You only get charged for the data that you put in that database, and to be able to get data out. But if you're not getting data out again. You, you're just being charged for, for the storage, similar to the serverless storage like blob storage. So using all those components together helps you get a full application up and running and you know exactly where your costs are. Matt, obviously we've spoken about that the having using serverless, it helps bring developers closer to the customer that they're developing for. But in terms of strictly adapting to changing business requirements and markets how do you see it being advantageous it allows you to easily update your application take something that you've built for a specific purpose and then if your organization needs to pivot you can easily do that without having to redevelop the whole thing and then just adjust the all the underlying infrastructure yeah, yeah right you just have to okay. re- and you can just redevelop for that new market or new problem take away and you don't have to worry about standing up all that underlying infrastructure again you can reuse a lot of that logic because a lot of it will be general and you just have to pivot the business logic for that new market if something's not working then you can do that pivoting very easily 
and the the serverless development in the past has been a little bit complicated to debug, but it's getting better. There's a lot of tools out there that can help make that a little easier to iterate through the development cycle, especially if you do a lot of test-driven development and uh, a lot of running a lot of tests during your development cycle so you don't have to... The hardest part about serverless is testing it in the cloud because you can't usually run it locally that as easily as running of it in course, your cloud provider yeah. because it's 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 part it's part of your cloud provider's DNA to provide all those services. And yes. if you run it locally, you don't get the full experience necessarily. And obviously we talk a lot about the shared responsibility model and how it pertains to different products and services in cloud. But in terms of shared responsibility for serverless and things like security and compliance, how is it different to managing other products? The, especially around security, uh, the, again, similar to cost, there's a huge benefit around security. And the security is that you can get really fine-grained controls on your application and your business logic on what it can do. When you have a VM, you have really wide permissions. It can, a lot of the time it can do anything because it's a little, it's a lot more complicated to restrict what's running on a VM to a specific thing or what it can access because the VM probably does a whole heap of different things, right? So you've got to let it do all those things. With a function, I can read from this object storage. That's it. That's the only permission it has. So, um, or I can write to this object storage or you can have, and the real benefit comes when you have to encrypt data. So you could have one particular function that puts data somewhere and encrypts it, but it can't read that data. And then you can have another workflow that reads the data by getting the key to be able to decrypt the data. So you're separating responsibility in different areas. In the past, the VM would have to be able to do both things or you'd have to have multiple VMs separated to be able to do the, the secure write and encryption and the secure read and decryption. So serverless allows you to really tighten up those security controls and have really fine-grained controls on what that particular business logic can do. And that's big from a security perspective. Obviously, the other part of that is that you don't have to worry about operating, several, operating level vulnerability, operating system vulnerabilities or things like that because the operating system is taken care of in serverless by your cloud provider. So all those things are taken care of. The only security vulnerability thing that the developer or organisation has to take care of is the modules that they use to develop their application and make sure they're current. And there's two cloud providers have tools to be able to inspect these things and give alerts when there's specific high-risk vulnerabilities appear in the serverless function. An example is AWS Inspector, because it, it'll alert if specific Lambda code, for example, is um, vulnerable to a current vulnerability, and then someone has to go and fix that up and redeploy the function with the latest modules to be able to fix that up. So, yeah, lots of benefits for security. Um, 
for sure. One thing I want to ask about as well is obviously, Matt, you have had your head in the clouds for a number of years now, but how? <laughs> That's the Great second joke. time this year. So good. But how did you how did you learn serverless? Because that's what I think a lot of when executives think about different skill sets and there's all these different there's all these advantages to going serverless, right? And particularly with, for executives that are like looking after particular front end functions that are doing important things for their customers. It's like okay, how do we cut out all this other infrastructure related work that our teams are doing and have them focused on developing things for our customers? There's so many benefits, but how do they actually get? Because I, there, like, I don't think there are lots of people out there that are specifically skilled for serverless. There are a few people that I know, but it's not a massive market, right? How do organisations look to skill for something like serverless? How did you get there? It's, it's actually it takes a whole mind shifts, mind shifts. Mind shift, shift. Mindset shift. <laughs> That's it. Mindset shift. Um, the it's too early in the morning, and it requires experimentation. Like for all, quite a while, when Lambda came out ten years ago this year, right? Really, Lambda yeah. is ten years old. I feel like almost Lambda is one of the best products that AWS has. Yeah. And then all the other cloud providers followed with their own specific <laughs> versions, but they all achieve the same outcome. Ultimately, it's a very simple, it takes an input, an event, runs some code and provides an output to whoever requested the thing. And yeah. the way I understood it and where it finally clicked for me was thinking about the serverless function, like a stored procedure in a database. And for those who don't know what a stored procedure in a database is, Database stores a whole bunch of stuff. Whenever you insert or delete or create a table, any and their events. So whenever a database receives an event, you can have code that runs on that database to deal with that event, which might be updating other tables or doing some sort of business logic in some weird SQL language. That's ultimately what a function is. And for me, that's what clicked in my mind on what serverless was. And then as more managed infrastructure came online by the cloud providers, like API Gateway was soon after Lambda, things like that. Um, oh, Lam sorry, API Gateway was already around, but Lambda couldn't talk to it. And then once right. Lambda could talk to API Gateway, then it was very clear that, you know, APIs were a really great way to be able to... Um, deal with, with serverless functions. So as long as you're a developer who knows how to code, you have to forget what you've learned about <laughs> glue code and, and templated applications. And for example, Microsoft ISP.NET is their web, web service thing to be able to deal with web requests for web applications. A lot of that code in those templates is not needed from a serverless perspective. It's all dealt with at that provider level so just getting your head around the fact that you don't need a lot of that glue code is is partly on the way and the other part is experimentation and all the cloud providers provide a lot of serverless examples in their training materials and if i was an executive i'd be making sure my teams would be learning that spending some time 
to learn that material, solve small problems in the organisation, and then build up that skill set to be able to um, have that serverless mindset when they're building their applications. And eventually people will get it and understand it. And all the cloud providers provide people and training, and a lot of it's free. Even your solutions architect will come and do a day-long immersion on serverless and that is enough to pique a lot of people's interest and it makes development fun again because all the boring stuff is taken care of and it's the interesting stuff that that's left behind that that you're writing code for make developing great again exactly <laughs> no a lot of a lot we of make a heart we should make a heart <laughs> make developing great again go serverless <laughs> Maybe that could be part of the title. Thanks um, for Amazon and Azure, if you're listening. <laughs> One other thing that I wanted to ask you about, Matt, and I know a lot of organisations, especially in the public sector, have a lot of concerns around like probity and making sure that they're not locking themselves into certain yep. vendors. Obviously, Lambda and what's Azure's? Azure one? Functions. Obviously, Lambda and Azure Functions, there's a certain level of customization that has to be done to either make it work on Lambda or make it work on Functions. Yep. What are your thoughts on that? Is there a way to avoid vendor lock-in with serverless or is it something that we, don't have, we haven't really achieved yet? So it's shifting out cost. Shifting out cost is basically I've developed my app for AWS and that okay. platform. What's my cost to shift out and develop it for Azure? To minimise that shifting out, you've always got a shifting out cost for everything that you do put in place. Um, mm -hmm. To minimise that shifting out cost, as long as you write your functions in a maintainable fashion and your business logic code is not going to change wherever it runs. How it runs, that changes. So yeah. the, the part where the event comes in, deals with the event, pulls the information out, that might be a different structure depending on the cloud providers, but yeah. you can abstract that away when you're building it out. Your business logic is going to be the same no matter where it runs. So to right. minimise your shifting out cost, you do not write your huge functions with a whole bunch of vendor-provided code. You keep your vendor-provided code separate and your business logic will stay the same. So that's the key to be able to minimise that cost. And then as you, your, your second part of your question around how do I fail over between cloud providers, well, that actually, if your business case means that you need to run the same thing in two different hyperscalers. Well, no, you can. So if the business case stacks up, then you can run that logic in two different cloud providers. You've just got to do the double the work to be at the start to be able to deal with those vendor provided APIs at the beginning. Yeah. And you still have to, you have to work out, you know, do I need to have two different APIs in two different cloud providers or, you know, you've got to break your application out, figure out which parts are the local, mm -hmm. most likely to fail. Um, mm -hmm. Ideally, you probably want to always run in one. And then if you need to fail over, you set up your infrastructure to fail over to the other um, as long as you're, you've, you've built the application and the business case says that it's worth doing that. A lot of the time for a specific application, that's usually not required except in extreme circumstances. Totally. So that's, that's, there's a whole, probably a whole episode on vendor locking. 
um, there. So maybe we should put that on the backlog. Yeah, probably. I think it's something a lot of organisations worry about. And I always think once you get to the bottom of it, like once you really understand more about cloud, you probably won't really worry about it. No, No, because you've you've already invested. Yeah, yeah, but at the same time, I guess a lot of executives are under pressure to like explain these things. Yeah, that's true. Especially in the public sector where perhaps things are not as innovative. Yeah, it's a bit hard. It's a bit harder there for a lot of things, right? Uh, but being able to articulate that shift out cost and develop it in a specific way—that that's the key. And it's actually, it just takes a bit of thinking and planning, and it's not that, not that much of an issue. Especially if you're starting, if you're going all in on AWS, then you have probably bigger things that you need to deal with rather than the specific, you know. <laughs> serverless function so yeah i think we've covered pretty much everything on the um, cool so that was a fun conversation um thanks for joining us and listening or watching we seem to get a lot more youtube viewers these days i love youtube <laughs> don't forget to I really uh, think smash the like button I, I like- well, it's nice that people can see our faces, you know? Yeah. And depending on like our that. recording provider, the quality will be high or low, depending on the week. But hopefully that becomes a bit Fingers more consistently crossed. good. Um, so crossed. we like feedback, feedback at cloud-dialogues.com. And we have a form on our website if you want to give feedback that way. Until next time where we'll talk about the specifically a use case around the serverless operating model. See you then. Who's our guest, Matt? Joe Emerson. Joe Emerson from Branch, uh, which is an insurance company in the US. Okay. Did we say that? We have now. (laughs) Okay. So so we've got, do you want to say it again? So it's like camera ready. So till next time, see you then.